Contra is friction. Contra is Contra is nuanced. Contra, Contra is, is transgressive. Good trouble. Contra, Contra is, is collaborative. Contra is a podcast. Is a space for thinking about design critically. Contra is subversive. Contra is texture. Welcome to Contra, the podcast about disability, design justice, and the life world. This show is about the politics of accessible and critical design, broadly conceived, and how accessibility can be more than just functional or assistive. It can also be conceptual, artful, and world-changing. I'm your host, Amy Hamrai. I'm a professor at Vanderbilt University, a designer and design researcher, and the director of the Critical Design Lab, a multi-institution collaborative focused on disability, technology, and critical theory. Members of the lab collaborate on a number of projects focused on hacking ableism, speaking back to inaccessible public infrastructures, and redesigning the methods of participatory design, all using a disability culture framework. This podcast provides a window into the kinds of discussions that we have within the lab, as well as the conversations that we're hoping to put into motion. So in coming episodes, you'll also hear from myself and the other designers and researchers in the lab, and we encourage you to get in touch with us via our website, www.mapping-access.com, or on Twitter at CriticalDesignL. And now we have a two-part episode with disability activist Alice Wong, who's done really incredible work with social media to strengthen connections between global disability communities. Alice is the founder of CryptoVote and the Disability Visibility Project, which has its own wonderful podcasts. She hosts Twitter chats and has been recently published in an edited collection called Resistance and Hope, Crip Wisdom for the People, which is a publication of the Disability Visibility Project. Alice has been recognized as a notable activist by multiple organizations, most recently by Bitch Media's 50 Most Influential Feminists of 2018. And she's also helped shape federal disability policy through her work with the National Council on Disability. In this episode, which we're going to call Episode 4, Part A, I talked to Alice about the Disability Visibility Project, disabled people as makers and tinkerers, and also about her contributions to articulating the concept of crip technoscience, which I've been developing through my scholarship. Crip technoscience describes the work that disabled people do to redesign the material world, often with the political intention to contest compulsory able-bodiedness, militarism, and capitalism. In anticipation of a new special issue of the journal called Catalyst, Feminism Theory Technoscience, which will be on the subject of crypt technoscience and which I'm co-editing with Kelly Fritch, Mara Mills, and David Serlin, this episode with Alice is going to be the first in a series of interviews with authors whose work appears in the special issue. So stay tuned for those as the season goes on. Just as a note, in case you're listening to this with kids, there is some swearing in this episode. Anyway, here's the interview. I'm so excited to be talking to you. Thank you so much for taking time out to do this. 
Well, it's nice to meet you face to face after all these emails. Likewise. Yeah. Um, lots to talk about. Um, well, so I think you're doing really incredible work and it's world changing work. And I really admire the breadth of your interventions and the ways that you're thinking about disability and the material world. I thought we could start out by talking about Crip the Vote and the Disability Visibility Project. And this thing about how social media is enabling disability community to be produced in a way that maybe it hadn't been before. Um, mm-hmm. And so this is a thing about new technologies, but also maybe some older ways of relating. And um, so I wonder if you could just talk about those projects and kind of how they came about and how technology has been part of that. Yeah, thank you for asking. Uh, so I guess with uh, the disability, the visibility project, it started in 2014. And, you know, this was the time when there was a year before the 25th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And, you know, at that time, I realized, I noticed there were a lot of, um, you know, organizations and just, you know, different disability communities, you know, planning to celebrate this huge, you know, landmark anniversary. And I was like, you know, I'm just one individual. And I thought, well, what could I do as a disabled person to contribute to this and you know I didn't really have an idea and you know I'm a constant listener of StoryCorps which has like these uh, short audio stories every Friday on NPR's morning edition and I realized that there was a StoryCorps location in San Francisco at the time and I attended one of their events and they had like you know former uh, storytellers on stage and talking about the power of storytelling. They mentioned that they have community partnerships, like local partnerships. And then I just went up to them afterwards and said, hey, did you realize like there's a huge disability community in the Bay Area? Have you worked with a community organization here? They're like, no, not really. So the light bulb went up and I thought, well, maybe I could just, you know, to form a partnership with them. And initially it was just going to be a one-year campaign to encourage people with disabilities to tell their stories and to have it archived as part of StoryCorps. And, you know, part of the impetus was not only to help celebrate and highlight the 25th anniversary of the ADA, but I really brought it to think about how there's not enough disability history out there and uh, how really it's so important for us to tell our stories in our own words. And I think the idea with StoryCorps that's was such a great partnership is that, you know, people feel really empowered. You know, it's very loose, it's very intimate. There are no rules on like telling your story. And the brilliant part that really encouraged me to do this was that every participant after their whole history 
as the opposite of HIV AIDS at the library chartres. So to me, that's just like, wow, you know, I thought if I could get, you know, 25, 50 total histories in a year, that's something that's going to be there forever. And I think it's so important to capture like the zeitgeist because we don't think about the history we're creating right now, like you and I talking right now. This is disability history. This is disability culture. And we often don't see it that way until like, you know, years later. So I thought, what's that, you know, just, I, I really didn't see enough disability history or media produced by us in a really robust way. So I thought, well, what can I call it? I thought, oh, disability, visibility sounds, it's a mouthful, but it rhymes. I thought, oh, hey, let's just do that. And it was really through social media that made this project really, like, it really snowballed because, uh, as Storico told me, that I guess that my partnership was very unique because most of them are very local and uh, short term, like, you know, a year or something. And, you know, I just thought I would use social media. It just hit, you know, everybody. So it was really a, 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 a national approach where there are Jewish people in uh, Chicago, in Atlanta, in our disability communities there because StoryCorps has locations there. And they also have a traveling uh, mobile tour. So I also reached out to disability communities there. It was only through social media that I did that because, you know, obviously I don't know people in every city. So uh, social media has been a huge kind of tool that helped me make this project what it is and you know it started out initially as this oral history campaign but i realized you know there's an online community that really has a hunger to find one another and also to share our stories so you know i guess the disability physical project now is really more of an online community that creates shares it amplifies disability media culture. We still are doing some oral histories, and we have up to now uh, 140 oral histories recorded. So I feel pretty good about that. But, uh, definitely, uh, the, the goals now are much more about forming all the communities and encouraging people to tell their stories beyond oral histories because there are just you know so many ways to tell our stories now yeah it strikes me that part of what you're doing is um you know creating media content that adds to the archive of disability history so you're part of it is recording stories that aren't in archives like the bancroft and um, some of those ones that tell mm -hmm. a very limited story and you're expanding that and then the other part of it is that you're redesigning um, all of the kind of modes of presenting information 
um, in a way that is also tied into disability culture. So the idea of having um, sound and text and different ways for people to participate, like, um, you know, like this, like we're doing kind of having a Skype or having a phone call, but also a Twitter chat. And that those are really things that come out of disability culture. Um, and other people do them, mm-hmm. but uh, they're the kind of layering is prioritized um, in the way that we tend to do things. And um, a lot of people just don't realize that. You know, yeah, I think that, you know, I was really mindful of, you know, when I started out, I was like, I tried to be very intentional about how I do things because, you know, there's no point in creating a website or creating content if it's going to be excluding parts of our community. And I think, you know, I've had feedback from some people with disabilities who said that, you know, oh, you know, you're using social media, but don't don't forget that there are so many people that are left out of the social media, you know, quote-unquote revolution. Yeah, there are a lot of people who just find it still overwhelming in a lot of different ways, and, you know, they just don't have the access or even the interest in social media. So I try to be really mindful of not sounding like an evangelist because, you know, I'm just trying to use as many tools that I have in front of me. And, you know, this is going to be my kind of niche in terms of trying to maximize social media while also realizing that this, you know, this is part of a larger, you know, repertoire of ways to do, uh, to engage. I think there's no a lot of utility and value in in person group, you know, one on one if uh, events and meetings. I think you know having conversations with friends is is just as important as any you know Twitter chat or podcast. So you know, well, I think it's a bit a game changer in my life personally. Then also, I think with the work with the Disability, Visibility Project, I try to also remember that there's always room to improve. Like, I'm not an expert. I'm just trying to, you know, I'm just learning as I'm going. And, you know, hopefully that, you know, over time, things will become better. You know, I think uh, I definitely want to hear from other people who says, if they find, you know, other things I could do to do my work that could be better, I think new features, new forms of accessibility that can be layered in. I'm totally open to that. I think, you know, we all try to do things based upon our knowledge of what we think accessibility means. And as you and I know, it's such a very, you know, specific idea many times based on our body bites. Yeah, we kind of forget about other body bites that we may not be as familiar with. So I definitely want to leave room to explore and experiment and to improve. So, and I also want to acknowledge the privilege. You know, I think that I do have access to broadband internet services. I have a laptop. 
you know, these are all kind of issues, you know, tied in with class and, you know, poverty that really kind of, you know, sometimes keeps me up at night thinking like, who am I leaving out? Who's left behind? And how should I do better? And I think I don't have an answer for that yet. But all I could do is just be mindful and acknowledge that kind of privilege. Because as much as we love and, you know, uh, value technology, you know, there's still so much in terms of uh, inequality that I think about a lot. That's a really important point. Um, It kind of ties into conversations within disability justice about intersectionality and um, not just thinking about accessibility in terms of the functional parts, like what do we need? The the answer to the question of what we need to be able to participate is not just the physical stuff that makes it possible for us to be present. It's also the wider range of things that, um, you know, may, you know, sometimes it gets into labor issues, like what else were we doing that um, affects our energy and our ability to be there. Sometimes it's about the physical spaces or the non-physical spaces, language um, issues, communication issues. Um, I'm, I'm reminded of um, a conversation that I was having with Velissa Thompson recently because she's going to be on the podcast as well uh, in some in a later episode with Moya Bailey. We haven't recorded that one yet, um, but Velissa also wrote a piece for the same journal issue of Catalyst that you have a piece in coming out um, on Crypt Technoscience about um, hashtag activism mm-hmm. and just this idea that one of the things that social media has enabled for disabled people is um, creating a space to be present when being physically present is not possible. And um, so that goes back, you know, way back. But I think about the Occupy from Home movement during the Occupy movement, like people who are contributing like from their beds and um, and from different kinds of spaces. And so there's like that part of it. But as you point out there, just the physical technologies that enable us to participate in social media are also um, sort of like they come from economic privilege. Mm-hmm. I think a lot about how they're produced in these horrible labor conditions and the materials that go into mm-hmm. our iPhones and computers are mind by people who um, become disabled through those processes also and what it means to have solidarity with them as well while we're doing all this other stuff and it's definitely an important thing for us to think about and and to keep thinking about accessibility in all of these different ways um so i thought we could turn to talking about crypt technoscience a little bit um and we can talk about the straw ban kind of through that as well. Um, so as background for our listeners, cryptechnoscience is a concept that has been coming about um, in disability studies, but also in design just in the last few years. Um, it's something that I was thinking about a lot when I was writing my book on the history of universal design, because I was finding all these examples in the archive 
um, really of two different things. One was that there are tons of uh, histories of disabled people as inventors and makers. And this is something that we're just starting to talk about historically. But of course, people have been living that um, experience for a long time. And then the other part is that disabled people have actually been using invention and making in acts of protest for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so there's this really cool thing about, um, you know, the, the sort of crip wisdom and knowledge that goes into changing your everyday environment in more mundane ways and how that translates into politics. And so there's a special issue of the journal Catalyst that's coming out um, this spring of 2019 that is about this topic. And Alice, you have a piece um, in there about that. But so I just wanted to talk to you. Let's just open it up and think about this concept of disabled people as makers and inventors. And I know that you also had a recent episode of the Disability Visibility Podcast that's about this. Um, and you've been thinking about it in different ways. So what are some of your thoughts about that? Yeah, thank you so much. I think it was a wonderful opportunity to write a piece for this for journalist I spent. It's coming up the upcoming issue. I do really think about you know the straw bag within this context of reptile science because I think you know, well, you know, you and I are part of the disability community. You know, we are so familiar with all the kind of amazing ingenuity and innovations that people with disabilities do every day. You know, it just gets me so frustrated that within this larger kind of what we think of as hacker spaces, you know, baker culture, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the contributions by disabled people is really not recognized or valued. You know, that to me is one of the biggest things that just, you know, really just gets me angry because I think so many of our contributions to the broader culture is not even seen as culture mm. or technology or as innovations. There is things that those people do so they can live independently versus this broader connection to how everybody can benefit from it. So I think that's one of the things that's still a big kind of divide in terms of, again, this is like where ableism comes up, where, you know, we need to make ourselves more, I guess sometimes more visible in terms of like, Maybe it, right? Like having terms like crypto techno science, you know, like, you know, uh, the blank, you know, the blank, you know, whatever you want to call it, but the idea of crypt culture as well, you know, that's still something that's not radical to me, but it's still very radical and I hate to use this word, but disruptive. To a lot of people, it's very, it's very unsettling for a lot of people inside of this community and outside of it. And I see it as a celebration of who we are and a, a way to 
Earth invisibilizes us. And I think so much of the invisibility is not from us, it's from the larger society, right? That just doesn't see us as, you know, innovators, creators, you know, just surviving itself is quite a feat for many of us. I think, uh, you know, one great example of cryptective science that, you know, before we talked uh, today, I was thinking about outside of the straw bed, other examples. And, you know, I'm reminded that there are so many people with disabilities who uh, are wheelchair users. And, you know, some of the wheelchairs, wheelchairs that they use for years are phased out, where like manufacturers don't make the parts anymore. Or that manufacturers have settings that just don't work for them. Some people actually hack their wheelchairs to keep them going, to keep their lives going, and keep the, the lifespan of the wheelchair going. I think, you know, that to me is always done, like, kind of informally, but then that works the wheelchair users, or that works the people who use the vacancy equipment. But that to me is a great example of crypto science, because, you know, this whole, like, durable medical industrial complex that many of us live under, uh, you know, insurance is a huge thing we have to deal with, uh, you know, lack of support, lack of just, you know, uh, even access to, you know, the kind of, uh, you know, uh, just the, uh, the lack of the information about the technology that we're using. You know, whether it's blueprints, codes, you know, software, access to that. And yet, disabled people are able to crack into those spaces. They really make it their own. And I think that to me is really exciting that we are kind of taking the power that really we were allowed to have as these kind of you know, passive patients or recipients of rehabilitation or assistive technologies. Right? We're supposed to be happy with what we're given. And, you know, for many of us, the products that are created for us really are inadequate. Mm-hmm. And that to me is really exciting that people are kind of creating, taking back that power and creating it. And pushing it forward. Yeah, I love that. Um, I want to give a shout out to Corbett O'Toole, who is a power chair user and a disability activist. Um, She was one of the first people who really uh, framed this idea for me. And um, back when I was doing archival research for my book, and I was in um, Berkeley, I was going to go to the archive to look at totally different stuff. She said, hey, a lot of wheelchair users have been hacking their own stuff for a long time, and you should really look at the archives of people like Ralph Hotchkiss, who um, created basically like a wheelchair repair shop, like a bicycle repair shop in Berkeley in the 70s, and then expanded that globally, um, and some other people. And, And what I found that was really interesting is that a lot of people who are hacking their own wheelchairs 
are not who we would typically think of as like an engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of women and people of color, especially, and mm-hmm. their stories are recorded. So it's really cool to read stories of um, disabled women in the 1950s and 60s, for example, who are talking about how they built their own wheelchairs and out of things like um, bicycle wheels and, mm-hmm. you know, different kinds of stuff and actually saying it doesn't, you know, look the way that people may expect a wheelchair to look or it functions slightly differently, but because they made it, they know how to fix it. And, um, and that enables them to be in the world and share their knowledge in different ways. Um, and so this, this is a history that has a lot of different dimensions. Mm-hmm. And it's something that um, definitely in the kind of like bro bicycle repair culture, nobody's talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that kind of maker hacker culture, it's not talked about. And I, I love that you use the word disruptive because that's one of those kind of annoying words that it is. I, 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 roll my eyes. I roll my eyes every time I use it, but I think, you know, it's actually appropriate. And yeah, you know, you, I use it with a bit of irony, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, we're the real disruptors, mister. And, uh, yes. you know. Yeah. yeah, if all people do, but I think that's... That's what I'm curious about. I want to ask you as well. You know, how do we get to that place where all of our accomplishments and knowledge and wisdom and skills are ever going to, does it matter that we need that acknowledgement or recognition? Or does it, is it important because I think our contributions do matter? And unless we call it out and name it, you know, people are going to do. So I don't know. Sometimes I wonder if I've got that a little bit of internalized ableism going on to where I feel like we need to be seen and heard by outside of our communities. But does that, it's not like I need their approval, but it's the sense that I want people to really see us as we are. And I think that's really the, the the tension I feel sometimes with myself, like, you know, but is it because, is it for us as a community to really say, wow, look at this amazing history, the legacies, you know, elders like Torbett, cool, I just, again, like you, I think I owe a lot of, you know, the generations of women, disabled women who've really just been, you know, shared so much of their selves and their their lives with me that it just made me feel so uh, welcome when I first moved out here to the area about 20 years ago. You know, they were the ones that were really like, welcome, like this is your part of us. And I was just like, wow, you know. Yeah, Torba, I think in particular, was so, but you just had this like kind of do nonsense badass style that just blew me away. Like, it's like that was just a baby crib, you know, did the 90s, just you know, starry eyed, just you know, trying to find community, really. And she was one of the ones that, like, oh yeah, you want to do this? Let's do this, you know. 
she's just made it everything seem possible. And that just, you know, you know, I, I will always, you know, feel like, wow, you know, that's kind of, she gave so much to so, so many. And it really made me think about, like, my own kind of responsibilities. And, you know, that paying it forward as well. So I do want to acknowledge the elders in our society that, that just inhabits so much wisdom that I feel like, you know, so much of that wisdom is just, unless they write a book or unless they tell their stories, it's like, sometimes I get that anxiety. It's like, we're going to lose this, you know, history. And then we need to tell our stories. Because I think sometimes the other thing about storytelling is that we don't realize what we've achieved. Right? Sometimes we do things, you know, informally in our own lives to, to, to make our lives better or just, you know, the little hacks and adaptations. We don't think of it that way. We just think it's just living our lives. And only, you know, later on, upon reflection or upon somebody else's observations, wow, then we realize, oh my gosh, like, I guess that was a thing, right? And I think we need to keep saying that these things are things. And I think that's, you know, hopefully one of the reasons why, you know, the Disability Physical Project exists is to say, these are things, these are things that we should be immensely proud about it just you know it breaks it just think about this is just the few examples to our stories it just imagine like all the other stories that we just don't know about yet and that to me is incredibly exciting the fact that this is just a small sampling that you know i'm able to have access to in terms of be able to tell these stories, but that's it's really just a hot trade into this larger universe, to this crypt universe, this crypt exercise universe that you that we're all participants in. Yeah. That's what it just keeps me going. Yeah, I love that. Um, and I want to think about one of the things that Corbett has contributed um, is her book, Fading Scars, My Queer Disability History, where she is calling on disability activists and disabled people to realize that some of the ways we've told our own histories have been extremely biased. For example, the oral histories in the Bancroft Library, while they're very good and important, there are very few people of color in them. And Mm so part of what it seems like you're doing and one of the projects of Crypt Technoscience is to expand that archive to be more inclusive. And then the other thing I think that we're sort of saying, and we should say more explicitly, is that disability culture is a maker culture. And so when I think, I agree with you that sometimes it can feel like, oh, like, why do I need non-disabled culture to recognize, mm-hmm. um, you know, what we're doing? Or are we basically just reproducing this idea that, like, disabled people can be good workers and we're so productive and blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, which I totally, like, hate that idea. I don't think that 
that's our only worth. Um, but there's this other thing, which is that because non-disabled culture doesn't recognize us as makers a lot of the time, um, they don't recognize that disability culture is full of makers and people who are expert mm -hmm. tinkers and hackers. And because of that, people tend to think about disability in solely medical terms. And so if we can get people to think about um, the processes that we engage in on a daily basis and the things that we make and the kinds of questions that we ask mm -hmm. that are part of disability culture, then that is already um, doing something to contest the dominant perception of disability as something that's always being acted upon by non-disabled people. Um, and so there are so many ways that that can go too. Like uh, another piece that's in the Catalyst issue I'm excited for you to read is Alice Shepard, who's a disabled dancer. And she's writing about um, the ways that she takes assistive technologies like wheelchairs and crutches and turns them into tools for art. And that's something that comes from disability culture. There's literally no one else out there who's taking disability technologies and using them for art, right? Or creating disability art that is kind of questioning what are technologies for, what do technologies do? Um, and so those are some of the ways we can think about it, I think, that get us beyond what is starting to happen in the kind of maker world and also some other worlds where um, there's a lot of emphasis on like, oh, we should recognize disability as diversity because we'll produce, we'll have more disabled workers and they'll be able to like grow the economy better and, you know, that kind of thing. And um, yeah, maybe that's true. I don't really care about that part of it so much. Me neither. Me neither. Or the flip side, uh, you know, I've seen a lot of arguments. Oh, like, you know, people should care about accessibility because, you know, pretty soon you have all these consumers, right? There's the commodification aspect, uh, the capitalist aspect. Uh, oh, you better make it design, you know, that's accessible because you're going to reach or a larger customer base. Yeah. And that to me is kind of gross, but like, as if that's the, that's the rationale to do these things versus how it can serve more people just as a social good versus, oh, you could, you know, increase your profit margin. Mm -hmm. But I guess that's always going to be part of, you know, like you said, with techno sciences, like you were always situated within these larger context of the, the world that we live in, and, you know, capitalism is a major force that's really hard to kind of, you know, escape from. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I think that sometimes people say things like that because they assume that that's what their audience cares about. Like a corporation wants to know about the bottom line to make a bunch of stuff that is accessible. But on the other hand, when we say things like that, we are reproducing an idea that's been very harmful to disabled people, which is that we're only good when we've been rehabilitated and made it to productive citizens. And that's an idea that has ties to eugenics. Um, it's also a very racist idea. And, um, and it seems so normal like in the culture that we live in and it's kind of made worse by some of 
the new kind of like technological discourses that are circulating. Mm-hmm. And so I I want to think about how crypt techno science can also challenge those ideas. And, you know, some of the ways that people may use crypt techno science for slowness or um, for uh, community and culture that's not just about consumption. Because the ADA is also very much, I mean, it is entirely about employment and consumption. Mm -hmm. And there's just more than that. Like, yes, we do those things. And we also do other things. Yeah, I definitely see that in terms of like the baker culture, it's like, you know, I think there's a very narrow vision of it in terms of material things. But I really see baker culture, especially with a, you know, trip baker culture, it goes, it includes material things like, like wheelchairs, like, you know, just everyday products, but it also is about creating spaces and creating flexibility, about creating interdependence, and about creating, you know, just new ideas, which and concepts, which is, I think, you know, a bit more abstract and not as tangible as a straw, as tangible as, you know, speakers or, uh, you know, some sort of app or device. I think that's, that's the thing that we need to think about in terms of the way we even think about picture culture is not just about these physical, tangible things in front of us that we can see and feel and touch. It's really about expanding our ideas of what it means to exist, especially in relation to one another. And I think that's the thing that's the most radical about, you know, disabled spaces is that we do push back, we do, you know, have, you know, concepts of crypt type and crypt labor. I just, the idea that not all labor has to be, you know, for labor to be valuable, we don't have to fix a monetary value on it, right? I think that's the other thing too about, you know, you know capitalism as if like the only productive body buys are ones that, you know, have a fixed, you know, income assigned to it. And I think, you know, so many disabled people who just exist in different ways, you know, are such cultural workers, you know, they're just, you know, contributing so much. But it's, there's no, maybe very little or no monetary value associated with it. And then somehow that becomes invisibilized. And I think that's where it's like, it's really fucked up. But in the sense, you know, we see beauty in places that people don't see beauty. And I think that's the same with all kinds of marginalized communities. You know, I think that's the that's our that's our superpower if we have to like, you know, throw it out and think about superpowers. But I think that's the value of why what we can offer to people is that we see value and beauty in things that people don't totally consider. I think that is a huge, you know, underlying subtext 
to do the baker culture that we traditionally do. You know, that we see and do things to ways that the door, the doormates, the normative folks, you know, just don't even understand or, you know, see it. That is like really, you know, disruptive, <laughs> radical, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I love this so much. I think what you're articulating is also like, I'm getting a visual in my mind as you're talking about this, that um, there, there's something material or kind of designerly about creating concepts and culture. And that if we're only designing technologies as we think of them as like these hard things that we hold in our hands or whatever, then we're ignoring that the context around it and all the meanings that are assigned to technologies and also interdependence and how we interface with each other. Those are also things that are designed and people make decisions mm -hmm. about how they're configured. Like we make decisions when we're planning events that lead to some people being able to come and other people not being able to come. And disability culture is constantly thinking through this not as like a problem to be solved, but as like an opportunity for experimentation and mm -hmm. also for solidarity. Um, I, I've been really enjoying reading uh, Leah Lakshmi Piepsna mm -hmm. Samarasinha's book, mm -hmm. Care Work, Dreaming Disability Justice. Incredible. I mean, that book is, I think, a technology. It's like a hacking manual. Like, here's how we survive. Here's how we do collective access. Here's literally a list of like, if you're a chronically ill person who travels a lot, how to get through that. And here are the tips. And it sort of um, shows in text the work that we're constantly doing with each other. And I, I just, I love that. Um, I'm sure similar things exist in other marginalized communities as well. Mm -hmm. And I want to think about how we can name that and use it, like hold it up, uh, uh, kind of like lift, lift it up in response to that kind of normative maker mm -hmm. culture. Yeah, I agree. And I wonder sometimes, you know, thinking about Leah's book or Corbett's book, you know, it's great to see all these books come out and just, you know, different forms of media, but I wonder, like, sometimes, you know, like, is it because it's in a book that somehow that was valid? It's, like, really interesting, like, you know, this idea that somehow throughout this establishment kind of product, you know, this idea that a book, that there's a publisher that found it, you know, worthy of being published in a book, and that's an achievement itself. But what are the hurdles that, you know, happen that until that had to take place to get that book published in the beginning? You know, really, I'm sometimes like, I'm so thankful that these books exist, because otherwise we won't be able to use them as references, to really hold them up as examples of, you know, these are some things that you can see very plainly outlined, you know, that's, it's there, it's out there. But then I also think about, like, there are other, so many other people's stories that are never going to be published, that are never going to be seen as marketable for a book, right? So I, and that to me is also interesting that, 
you know, it's such a book for people to really see and see disability culture, disability justice within these really, you know, concrete ways. But why do we take so much value on the book? And I think, again, you know, with the discipline studies, you know, that's like books, journal articles, you know, those are all like these end products that are like achievements. And then what happens to that process toward those uh, outcomes that might get lost, right? It's like that to me is also fascinating that there are people that have stories that try to get published or they try to, you know, create their own stories. And yet, you know, sometimes there's these things that interfere. Mm-hmm. And that to me is kind of curious too, like what gets lost in the process. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I'm thinking about how, like, you know, for me as someone who is in academia and also an activist, like, there, the book is so normalized. Like, for my job, I am expected to write books. That's how I mark progress in my career. Um, but that there's so many other things, like you said, that, um, well, first of all, the privilege of producing a book that is recognized and distributed and sold and all of those things. Uh, and then also even just the privileges of putting language to something. <laughs> and I'm thinking about, um, you know, many disabled people who are non-speaking or um, whose language is not considered legible to a kind of like dominant body mind, a reading, listening, kind of cognitive body mind, um, and the barriers that text creates. So like, you know, I have disabilities related to how long I can read every day. And the older I get, the less time I can spend reading every day. And so I've been thinking a lot about kind of what are the other types of production. They're not recognized by my job. Um, But one of the things that in my critical design lab that we work on is um, these things called protocols for unfinished technoscience. So and anytime we're in the middle of making something, we draw a diagram of um, kind of what the deal is. Like, how did we get there? What are the things that we're thinking about? And some of those diagrams are just line drawings and pictures, and some of them include text. But it's this idea of like capturing an unmade thing or something that's in the making. Um, and that's really also something that comes out of disability cultures, like expressing relationships, the flow of ideas, etc., without writing a paragraph about it, which is actually kind of a very um, limiting mode of expressing an idea. Yeah, and I think things are linear, right? Like things, not only are things not binary, but they're not always linear either. There isn't always an end goal or end outcome. And I think a lot of things that happen with it, you know, trip culture are really just very uh very process based. You know, there's there's so much you know there's so much richness in that. And sometimes that gets lost because it's you know not really uh 
captured in different ways. I think that's that's a thing too. But I think there's, but this is always ongoing. It's not like it's not like there's ever a, it's never gonna be a danger because anytime you get a bunch of groups together, there's always gonna be these conversations and these you know interactions that really create these processes. I mean, it's a really, you know, unstoppable force. Mm. But I think that, you know, there are times where, you know, we get these, we get kind of hung up on, you know, these end results. And sometimes that's a function of, you know, uh, able supremacy. But I think, you know, capitalism as well. But I think, you know, we are always in, in a process of evolution. You know, we're always evolving, always kind of thinking. I mean, almost like versus baker culture. Sometimes I think we're more of a tinkers. Mm. You know, we're always tweaking things. You know, always going to be adjusting. We're always reshaping ourselves. And, you know, that almost is sometimes more accurate than baker. Sometimes I think. Baker sounds very finite. Mm-hmm. Right, that's, yeah, that's a thing you create at the beginning. With once was nothing, now there is something. <laughs> Versus a tinkerer who just sometimes through the ebb and flow of, you know, our life, we just, you know, tweak things around. We not, might not be able to create something completely brand new, but we're tweaking things. We're just you know, twisting them and just, you know, reforming things that are already around us. Yeah. You know, those are things that are sometimes not as visible as baking something. Yeah. And I think that's another kind of undercurrent of, you know, crypto science that's below the radar of bakers, right? Is that we're really secrets. And that so much of that is just so like kind of like taken for granted by all of us. Yeah. Like we do stuff all our, ourselves that we just aren't even kind of aware of. And I think that to me is like that's also brilliant, but that's also like what are some ways we can really just you know reflect for ourselves to think wow, this is, like, fucking amazing. Like, I'm like, wow, we are fucking cool. Like, this is, this is a thing. And, you know, like, you know, how do we make things a thing to, like, to really say this is part of our culture, right? This is also part of our, our identity, right? I think that's the thing that we got to expand our identities as disabled people, as not only just people with agency, but also people with, who just breaks we just have so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Tinker is part of our identities. It kind of reminds me of the conversations that we sometimes have about how access is a process and a continual negotiation and not um, just one outcome on a checklist. And it's, it's so interesting that um, what you're offering us is a way to think about that as part of our identities, not just as something that we do, but as something that characterizes um, who we are individually and collectively.
You've been listening to Contra, a podcast about disability, design justice, and the life world. Contra is a production of the Critical Design Lab. Kevin Gotkin, Amy Hamrai, Cassandra Hartley, Maggie Mang, Jara Mosh, and Leah Samples. Follow us on Twitter at Critical Design L and learn more about our projects at www.mapping-access.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. The Contra podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike International 3.0 license. That means you can remix, repost, or recycle any of the content as long as you aren't making money, you don't change the credits, and you share it under the same license.